Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Kerrigan, a partner at CMS and a specialist in digital assets, fintech, and importantly for today's discussion, cryptocurrency. He is the author of multiple books, including The Financing of Intangible Assets, TMT Finance and Emerging Technologies, and Growing with Blockchain. And as a leading expert in blockchain and digital technology in the UK, has sat on the advisory committees for the Parliament, the Bank of England, amongst many, many others. So a very, very warm welcome, Charles. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. My absolute pleasure. Really delighted to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects and experiences to date, we do have a customary opening question on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is, on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Ooh. <laughs> um, uh, provided there are no supplementary questions, I'll, I'll give it an eight. <laughs> okay, I, I promise to stand by your uh, your eight then, and we will move swiftly on. So let's start at the beginning, Charlie. Tell us a bit about your family background and upbringing. Oh well, I'm from Doncaster, um, so that that will be less apparent in my accent now than it was 25 years ago when I came to London. Um, and um, what can I say about my upbringing? So I had a fairly conventional. Um, route through schools and university. I didn't have any incredible achievements in um, my life before I became a lawyer, obviously making up for it now. Uh, so I, I haven't been an Olympic skydiver between school and university. <laughs> I haven't um, uh, split the atom uh, in a gap year or done any of the things that um, people these days seem to be required to do. So I left university, went to law school um, and arrived at Slaughter May was my first job. I worked at Slaughter May for about eight years with a short stint for a year or so at Simpson Thatcher in New York, which was one of the relationship firms and then left to join Oldswang, which was um, very culturally different. And that was appealing to me and got merged into CMS with everybody else from Oldswang and Navarro about five years ago now. Yeah, and again, you've been highly successful ever since you you joined the firm, as you have right the way through your career, despite not splitting the atom in your formative years. So I guess, Charlie, we have a big overarching question to start with that I'm sure all our listeners are keen to, to know the answer to. So very simply, what does a cryptocurrency lawyer actually do? We're still trying to work that out. Uh, <laughs> So um, that is probably the best definition, description of my job these days, trying to establish what a crypto lawyer does. Um, the market is um, very immature. We've been going for a few years now. Uh, Bitcoin's obviously passed its 10th anniversary, and um, there's been a, a real um, increase in the pace of adoption probably the last three or so years. And then we go off in all different directions through um, NFTs, decentralized finance, metaverse projects, blockchain gaming, and play to earn. So the, the best thing about crypto is the uh, imagination of the people who work in crypto. And there isn't a book, although um, I think a few of us are being 
approach to see if we can help write one, um, it will be well out of date before we've even close to finished. So that's one of the big questions about what sort of a book should it be or could it be? Um, people who do this type of work, one of the interesting things is they they come from different disciplines. So law firms are split in a fairly traditional way um, by the, the type of lawyer. So you have a corporate department with corporate lawyers who do M&A and JVs and similar, and you've got a banking department with lawyers that do variations on debt funding transactions, IP departments, real estate departments, and so on. Now, the interesting thing about crypto is nobody who built crypto stopped to say, um, which department would this best fit into if we were building it for a law firm? Lawyers were the probably the last people that they thought about. Um, back when the cryptographers and computer scientists were, were coming up with the Bitcoin software protocol in 2008. So crypto lawyers, and there are a few of us in London, come at it from different disciplines. My background is corporate finance, um, mainly corporate finance in the technology sector and fintech. So it's probably obvious from that how I sort of um, stumbled into it, but others um, are corporate lawyers, and uh, crypto has worked for corporate lawyers who are interested because there are corporate transactions, there are now M and A transactions. Since the industry has reached that sort of level of maturity, um, they need equity fundraising, they need corporate structures. There are financial regulatory lawyers who are involved in crypto because. We've got this issue that the Bank of England and the FCA are uh, working through the policy on at the moment. And um, uh, they were speaking to the government, uh, the leaders of those organizations um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, putting out there the difficult policy questions of how should this be regulated? How should it be approached? So we've got regulatory lawyers who are part of the the group in the UK looking at this. And we've got technology lawyers because um, the genesis of these things is that they are technology. They're, they're essentially software. That's the kind of curious thing to get your head around. Bitcoin is not only not a bank, it's not a company, it's not anything apart from a piece of software. So there's room for lots of types of lawyers. And that's how the legal community looking at these issues is made up. And I love I love all of that definition. So for the fact that you're still uh, figuring it out, I still think that was pretty uh, pretty compilated and, and useful. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And I guess for those that are perhaps quite confused by blockchain, could you define it as best as possible? Yeah. So pr- probably by reference to some of the problems that it solves. And, and maybe I would say if anyone is confused by blockchain, don't, don't let that put you off. I, I'm still somewhat confused by blockchain, and I was very confused by it when I started getting interested in it 2013, 14, 15. What I found was um, I, I could understand explanations that I was given in the sense that I knew what the words meant and I could repeat them to somebody else who asked me, but I didn't have an understanding psychologically. It it didn't make sense to me. And the way that I overcame that was by keeping going. So I kept reading about it. And 
I kept asking people who had expertise about it. And each explanation that I read or that I heard just helped me a little bit further towards an understanding. And then I think for everyone, there's kind of a tipping point where um, your mind stops fighting it. So you stop thinking, does this make sense to me? And is it like something that I know about already? And you just start accepting it for what it is. So there are lots of analogies um, comparing blockchain, Bitcoin to um, to traditional assets in the financial markets. And I think they only help to some extent because if you're trying to um, think about it or describe it by reference to traditional assets, you, you probably um, go a bit wrong and be missing things. So with that big caveat, I'd say um, Bitcoin is described by blockchain technology. So what's the difference between Bitcoin and blockchain to begin with? And blockchain is a family of technologies that do a range of broadly similar things that I'll come back to in a second. And Bitcoin is an example of those technologies. It's the best known example. And blockchain and Bitcoin together solved a few um, well-rehearsed computer science cryptography problems. I'll bring this back into the real world in a second because this sounds like we're about to go down a, a deep hole. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the original Bitcoin protocol was particularly interested in the question of how can you establish a value transfer system where you are not in a trusted environment? So what does that mean? If you and I want to transfer funds to each other, we by and large do that using a bank. So I tell my bank to send money to your details and it goes there. Bitcoin looked at the problem of, is it possible to do that without a bank? So can you do it peer to peer as the original Bitcoin white paper described? And a, a white paper for non-technologists is a short description of a new technology project. So the type of issues that you come across in trying to do this generally relate to identity and trust and secure messaging. And each of them have a fairly long history in both the financial markets and in computer science. What Bitcoin was able to do was provide a practical use case that solved a few outstanding problems in this area and enabled you and I to transfer value to each other without using a central intermediary. So when we talk about centralization and decentralization, that feature of Bitcoin using a blockchain means that we're able to transfer value without using a centralized intermediary, i.e. a bank or a central bank or similar. So that was really the, the short description of the breakthrough the Bitcoin provided. It didn't do much else. It, it is a, a very elegant uh, piece of code. And over the years, lots of people have tried to hack it and crack it. The NSA, the CIA, the FBI, sometimes accused of being the builders of it, um, but more generally um, thought to be people who have a great interest in what goes on on the Bitcoin blockchain. And a blockchain, in very simple terms, is, is just a database. It's a secure database which can't be rewritten because nobody controls the database. It is distributed 
across a range of computers. So if you have, um, if you download uh, the Bitcoin protocol and you run the Bitcoin protocol on your system, you are effectively in the position of a bank in the analogy that I described. You are part of the community of computers that holds the database saying who owns what Bitcoin. And you register across the whole database each transaction, each transfer. Now, this is quite fiddly and can be involved, but the benefit is a really substantial benefit of effectively um, transferring value in a trustless environment. And that takes us on to lots and lots of other topics that we can jump to as, as, as we go through the conversation. And, and perhaps there's some further further reading and further research for people to do afterwards. Yeah, and I guess that segues quite nicely. And thank you again for such a um, detailed overview and, and kind of simplifying what is quite a complicated um, area, that's for sure. So, you know, what questions does blockchain ask of the law and how does it push the boundaries of the law as it currently is? So it asks some policy questions that I think are well rehearsed. In other words, you, you can... You don't have to look very hard to find uh, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, and John Cunliffe, one of the deputy governors, um, making pretty negative statements about Bitcoin. And what they're concerned about is its ability to facilitate financial crime. So you've got regulatory issues arising there. Now, you may ask the question, well, why don't they do something about it? The short answer, as they would tell you, is it's not their job. So that seems a bit strange. Why is it not the job of the man who runs the FCA, uh, sorry, runs the Bank of England, um, to, to manage this problem? Well, the reason is the financial regulation in the UK and elsewhere has what's known as a regulatory perimeter. And uh, activities and assets that sit within the perimeter are subject to regulation by the FCA and activities and assets that sit outside the perimeter are not subject to um, that supervision. Might be surprising to hear that Bitcoin sits outside the perimeter. So why is that? Well, in very simple terms, it doesn't have the same characteristics of the type of regulated instruments that sit inside the perimeter. What do we mean by that? So the classic examples of regulated investments would be debt and equity. We take a step back and say, what is equity? So it is a, an instrument issued by a company which represents some claim on the company. Now, Bitcoin is a piece of software. It is not issued by anyone or anything. It's not issued by a bank, a central bank, or a company. It just is. And this is part of what I was describing before is kind of hard to get your head around at the beginning. And second, it's certainly not redeemable. You can't, um, if you buy a Bitcoin, you can't cash it in. You can sell it so you can access your value in the market, but you can't redeem it. 
So it's not like a loan, which pays back at the end of the term. And it's not like equity, where if the companies wound up, there's a distribution back to the shareholders. So Bitcoin doesn't satisfy the characteristics of regulated investments. So that's that's one. And I'll do very quickly, even more fundamental questions arise. So we had, um, like all these things, examples uh, probably three or four years ago now where uh, Bitcoin was stolen and the police who are pretty good at this, they have very sophisticated um, tools for looking at from their perspective, transactions on the dark web is what they're interested in, but Bitcoin is to some extent used to facilitate those transactions. Uh, I'll stop here to say I don't want to give Bitcoin a bad name. So the general view is that uh, about 0.5% of Bitcoin touches financial crime. That's a much lower figure than financial crime in the wider economy. You can look up the statistics for... um, how money is laundered through the um, uh, the general economy and and not through the crypto economy. So, quick, quick segue there because I'm about to talk again about financial crime. So, when Bitcoin got stolen because it turned out to have value a few years ago, uh, the police did their job, the CPS did their job, and we had cases that were coming before the UK courts. Now, the theft acts in the UK work by reference to criminalizing appropriation of property. So nobody really thinks about that very much. It's obvious what theft is without looking at the theft acts until you start bringing cases relating to theft of Bitcoin. Because we in the community start scratching our heads and saying, we've never really established if Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, other crypto assets, are property under English law? Well, the answer is surely they are because they have this characteristic that they can be owned and sold. And that makes them look like property because they've got a value. So what else can they be? Well, English law has very long-standing definitions of property and it categorizes property using a fairly obvious split between tangible property and intangible property. So tangible property is like uh, real estate. You can go and stand on it, or it's like machines. You can go and pick them up. So Bitcoin's obviously not that. So it must be intangible property, right? Well, there are two kinds of intangible property under English law. One is uh, intellectual property, and the types of intellectual property are established by the intellectual property statute. So the Copyright Act tells you what is copyright. Well, we we definitely don't have a Bitcoin Act, so it's not IP. Then the only other category that we've got of intangible property, or or we did have, I should say at this time, is effectively contracts. So contractual obligations between parties, and that includes things like receivables, so money owed to people and bank accounts and things like that. So Bitcoin looks a bit like that, apart from it isn't, because there's no contract and there are no counterparties. So we're left scratching our heads and looking at these cases heading towards the courts, thinking we're about to be really embarrassed here. 
So in November 2019, there was a legal statement published by, sponsored by a man called Sir Geoffrey Voss, who is the boss of the judges. That's not his technical term, but I'm not a litigator, so I, I don't know what his um, honorific title is, Lord Chancellor or something like that. Um, so this issue was solved by the quick thinking and quick work of uh, a group of interested judges and academics and practitioners, including me, who helped pull together a paper that enabled um, the judges to say Bitcoin will be recognized as property, should be recognized as property under English law. Uh, we're still working through the implications of that. The Law Commission have got a couple of consultations running that are definitely worth a look at. So one on smart contracts and one on digital assets. They run in parallel, quite closely related. Um, they've had really smart and sophisticated engagement, and that's now been published on the smart contracts one in the last uh, week or so. Um, so, I mean, you asked me a very short question some time ago <laughs> saying, what, what does this throw up? And my goodness, um, so that, that's the sort of where do I start? And, and I could go on, but I, I think we've only got uh, a couple more hours. Is that right, Rob? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Charlie. No, thank you, because, you know, this is a emerging area where we want to educate. So really appreciate you going into some, some, some levels of details for our, our listeners. And now time for a short quiz. Can you guess how many of your prospective clients now expect to work with you online? If you guessed almost four out of five or 79%, you got it right. Want to learn more about where the future of the legal profession is headed? Then leading practice management software provider Clio has just released a resource I think you're all going to love. In their 2021 Legal Trends Report, they compiled data from tens of thousands of legal professionals to chart the major upcoming trends for law firms. The annual Legal Trends Report is released every October, and you can get your copy for free at clio.com forward slash legal trends. That's clio.com forward slash legal trends. Now back to the show. And I guess for you know the legal community, those looking to get into this area of law, it's the now and the future. How can potentially aspiring lawyers, current people looking to diversify their practices, get themselves prepared for this? Most people who do it have come to it because they've got a personal interest in it. Either they're interested in the technology or they've bought some crypto, downloaded an app, or some are really sophisticated um, and haven't got legal background in it, but have spent time understanding and trading crypto over the last few years. So I, th I think the main thing that you need is just to have an interest in it. If you are curious and do some reading, that's the main thing that, that will get you there. As I say, you can come at it from lots of different angles and it's certainly the case that this is a, a very fast-growing legal market. I I've assumed until probably three years ago that this would be um, a side desk project that I really was interested in, but it, it wouldn't replace my uh, day job, which is sort of funding fintech businesses and funding technology businesses and working out how to um, get capital into 
IP rich businesses and businesses with intangible assets. Well, I, I was I was wrong about that. It is a a very large and fast growing area of work for lawyers. We need more people who can work on it. It, it is a bit um, difficult to work out where to start. So I'm I'm often ask this and generally I refer people to online resources or loads of podcasts um, lots of great material um, it's a commitment I'd say that so this changes every day um, the market is extremely dynamic and innovative and as I sort of rattled off um, so nft projects I think I'd been involved in zero in February this year. First one came to me in March and I've worked on more than 30 now. So that's the kind of speed that things go and NFTs are now moving into those metaverse um, projects that are becoming more uh, public and also blockchain gaming, play to earn is, is a big trend in that. So the trends sort of build up and develop and split into different directions. So um, if you're going to be involved in it, there's a there's a, a sort of reasonable commitment of discretionary time around trying to keep up with it. One thing that I think I've learned the clients see as important is that they they the crypto community is definitely a community. They like people who are interested in their stuff. It's not a even across the UK, it's not um, thousands and thousands of people. So in a again, in this kind of odd way, it's possible to know a lot of the people who are at the cutting edge building this technology. You can go to dinner and you're sitting next to the founders of some of the biggest crypto firms in the market. It's a bit like being a banking lawyer and um, having dinner with Mr. JP Morgan and Mr. Barclays whenever that was um uh, in history, that would have been so. It's an amazing, there's amazing access to the market, uh, but the market kind of expects that you're bringing something as well. You're you're um, you're reading about it, you're thinking about it, you're seeing what's new, you're responding to what's new, and helping people in the community. It's a, a really helpful and engaged community. Great, great people to work with. Um, so self-starters are definitely welcome. <laughs> there's room for everybody. And I'd, I'd say we certainly have still kind of mismatch between demand for legal services and supply of those services. So now is still a good time to be looking at getting into crypto as a lawyer. Absolutely. And you definitely have not missed the boat. And you touched on NFTs. So you know, let's jump to that. What are your thoughts on, on NFTs generally? Are we living in a bubble or do you think they will hold value? I mean, there's vast NFTs going for some horrendously high figures and sums currently um, for those that are in the market. And perhaps for those not familiar with an NFT, you know, how would you define one? Uh, yeah, so an NFT is a digital digital collectible. It is a, a unique representation of an online asset. So the classic NFTs are um, quite corny looking uh, pictures. There's a reason that they don't look that impressive at the early stage. So the NFTs um, are, there are two 
ways of, of NFTs being um, loaded onto a blockchain. You can either load something that is effectively like a, a title certificate to the NFT, or you can load the NFT itself. If you load the NFT itself, then that item is stored and traded on the blockchain, generally the Ethereum blockchain, but all of the other blockchain protocols have been furiously building um, NFT support and projects out there. So to put something onto the blockchain is computationally expensive. And that's the reason why some of the early ones you see are quite low resolution, simple pictures. So that's not a coincidence that they didn't look very exciting to begin with. But like everything in crypto, there's a, a technical problem that then gets solved by the next project that comes, whatever you're looking at and thinking, well, this is great, but if only it had A, B, and C, it would be even better. There will be someone building a version of it with A, B, and C as features, and so it goes on. So NFTs, um, it's the digital version of having uh, sticker albums. And yeah, for sure, we're in a bubble. There are... Um, a number of different reasons for that. So a lot of the trading of NFTs is done between people who are um, quite serious people in the crypto community. So they they may be publicizing projects, they may be trading between them, they may be spending uh, ether that they've mined and therefore hasn't cost them anything. So it's a bit different to you know something goes for ten thousand dollars, wouldn't be the same as. Uh, you or I transferring $10,000 from our bank, sending it to a digital wallet, and then using the funds in that wallet to purchase an NFT off the blockchain. Generally, the higher priced NFTs are being bought and traded by people who are um, deep in the space and, and have been for a long time and have got liquidity and other crypto assets that they're trading for NFTs. Um, there's a world of marketing that sits around these. So they're kind of often tentpole items for a particular project or to bring um, activity to a new protocol or a new variation on a way of doing things. So it, it's, it, yeah, it's definitely a bubble and um, most of them won't retain their value, but we're at the, at the moment in that sort of scramble for um, market share in an attention economy. So lots of crypto can be explained by all of the textbooks around uh, psychology and um, why people think in certain ways, cognitive biases and things like that. Crypto both exploits and um, is subject to all of those things, which is why it's such an interesting area to work in. Um, so, yeah, be, like anything in crypto, if people are looking to join it, um, don't spend money you can't afford to lose. Do your own research. Don't send um, anything of value uh, to someone that you don't know or without verifying the address. The, the rules are exactly the same as in any other asset class or in the real world. Um, it's possible to be influenced by the fear of missing out or this view that um, lots of things have shot up in value or everyone's got a friend who's um, made terrific amounts of money. It, it is an area where 
Um, it's possible to be smart. It's possible to be lucky. Um, but but it, it's an area where you need to be careful because um, there's always a lot going on behind the scenes. So research, research, research. Yeah, really sage advice. And and I really appreciate that, Charlie, because, you know, a lot of people will be listening to this thinking, you know, I need to get onto it, need to get onto it, the, the fear of missing out, but absolutely research, do your do your due diligence. And you've definitely made your mark in this area of law, that's for sure. You've been listed as a key influencer for cryptocurrency, you know, the blockchain industry in the UK landscape overview in 2021. You mentioned, and I mentioned in my introduction, you're a number of advisory boards, including the parliamentary boards for artificial intelligence and blockchain. So could you just tell us a bit more about this work you do on these particular boards? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the policymakers are with us in just trying to work out what's going on and what we should do about it. Uh, maybe two things to pick out because they may not be obvious. So one is um, implications for traditional finance. There is some possibility that all of this kind of frothy hoopla um, may be sowing the seeds for a new type of financial um, market that will, to some extent, displace the traditional financial markets. Now, no one knows, but everybody is now at least prepared for that possibility. So we've got a really urgent question from a financial markets policy perspective of, could this really change everything? <laughs> we've understood about the banking industry for some time. It won't change it overnight. And there'll be all kinds of things that um, we can't predict that happen before any really material change comes through. But that's one of the big questions. And then the second, from a politician's perspective, uh, crypto assets are, to to some extent, an extension of digital money. So digital money has been around for about 20 years. I um, first got involved in it in the early 2000s, and it's got some history before that. So when we talk about money these days, um, physical cash has a, a reducing uh, life in society. Big questions about whether it should be replaced entirely. And I think most policymakers think not. Um, but the history of digital money is very closely bound up with um, social inclusion and digital inclusion. So some of the best known projects, there's one called M-Pesa in Kenya, which is effectively um, uh, telephone credits on the, it was a Vodafone project initially. Um, uh, so, so telephone credits are used as a kind of uh, banking system. In other words, people who were unbanked can use telephone credits and use a mobile phone to be able to transfer value to each other. That seems kind of trivial, but it's actually extremely important if you uh, live in a subsistence economy, the ability to store some funds from one harvest to another may be the, the kind of of existential significance to you if if a harvest fails and you're not in a in a situation where you've been able to store value so um there's always been a very very strong theme around these things it seems like a, a load of boffins just ignoring the real world and running around doing fun projects with each other but social inclusion digital inclusion financial inclusion 
supporting the unbanked is a, a, there are lots and lots of streams flowing through crypto, and that is one of the um, uh, one of the key streams. Anybody who works in crypto will know about this, have a view on it, be often supporting this kind of um, uh, social inclusion because that's one of the things that the crypto can bring. It can reduce the cost of accessing funds. And again, just sort of going back, I've talked a lot, a lot about crypto assets and particularly Bitcoin, which is only scratching the surface. But one of the uh, values of Bitcoin is not so apparent to people in something like the UK, the developed economy. Um, if you live in an economy where uh, there's very high inflation or uh, funds in a bank can be expropriated by a government or it can be um, uh, the, the banking industry is, is, is fragile, then your view of fiat currency, so in our jargon, we talk about anything that's not crypto is fiat currency, so sterling dollars and all the other world currencies. So we have a view of fiat currency in the UK, US, Europe as being a sort of stable, accessible, government-supported, trustworthy thing. Um, that's just because of where we live. It's not the case everywhere. And that is part of what was um, a great breakthrough around Bitcoin. And it's why Bitcoin and other crypto assets are so well used. Um, worldwide, not, not just in the um, developed economies. And also, there are political aspects to it. So I, I can't mention that without saying that you know, there was, at the beginnings of Bitcoin, a sort of strong libertarian um, view to it. So it's not a coincidence that the Bitcoin protocol was first released in 2008, beginning 2009, um, because it was a response to the financial crisis, where there was a perception by some of the um, uh, libertarian uh, folks that were around Bitcoin in its very early days, that um, the uh, banking community hadn't behaved in a, um, a, 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 a fair way. And so this was a, a, a piece of technical innovation that gave people who wanted to an opportunity to hold and and transfer value outside the financial markets. So as I say, lots and lots of streams in crypto and people choose different ones or sort of float across different ones at different times. Yeah, and thank you again for, for sort of sharing that and giving us such a, a comprehensive overview, Charlie. We've gone through a lot in, you know, we've, it sounds like we've gone through a lot, but I know we've also only scratched the surface and, you know, we'd love to kind of go a lot deeper and we're going to have to do some follow-up episodes on this on the Legally Speaking podcast for sure, because we've touched on crypto, we've touched on blockchain, we've touched on NFTs. And before we wrap up, I want to just talk a little bit more about the metaverse, because, you know, I, I think that's something people are trying to educate themselves on, but linking it to, to law. So, you know, will we see more law firms operating in the metaverse over the course of 2022 and beyond? Yeah, there's a lot of work coming through for sure because of the projects. So for, for our purposes, we probably talk about the metaverse being a, an immersive digital world. So to, to take as a starting point, um, 
currently when you're on the internet, you go from one company's website to another company's website. So what the metaverse has as a vision is um, the ability to move seamlessly between these things as if they were rooms or buildings or lands or things like that. So you can um, take your digital assets, which may be digital sneakers that you've you've paid and move from one place to another. I'm, I'm really interested in um, museum and cultural projects in the metaverse. I've been involved in those uh, for a while and, and they are my kind of touchstone for um, really cool use cases. Um, it raises, I keep saying we've got lots of legal issues that we're still um, trying to work through both conceptually and practically. And sometimes we're further ahead on one side than the other. Um, one of the things that the metaverse throws up very clearly is uh, legal systems are uh, jurisdiction based. So we have a domestic system in the UK of English law and regulation. The metaverse is not, um, well, the meta metaverse in each jurisdiction will be subject to local rules, but it is a transnational project. So lots of difficult questions arise um, through that. Um, lots of obvious questions around information security, personal data and sharing of that. Um, but likewise, as I say, whenever a problem is identified or thrown up in the community, um, there are people building and developing solutions to, to address that. So one of the most interesting thing from a lawyer's perspective is something called self-sovereign identity. So how do I demonstrate to you that I am who I am? Well, I, I would generally give you some government approved document. I'd show you my passport or driving license. Um, Self-sovereign identity is enabling us as users of these digital worlds to hold our own identity. And if we use as an example, maybe in the sort of real world, um, if I have to prove that I can go to a pub and order a drink, I could do that using my passport. Now, I've given more information than I need to. What the pub landlord needs to know is that I meet the criteria legally for ordering a drink. I, I am 18 years old. What I'm showing them by proving my identity is my name and my birthday and the town I was born. Lots more information on my passport than what they need to know. So self-sovereign identity works on that as a problem and says you can hold your identity yourself and you can release only those parts of it that are relevant to a particular transaction that you're entering into. And this is all complicated, but it will be supported by one of the things that we haven't talked about today is, is artificial intelligence. So there's technologies that help us develop um, effectively automation in a practically useful way. That would be my description of what AI is and what it does in the real world. And so AI is going to be running. Everyone's going to have their own uh, AI on their devices, and it's going to be running in the background, managing things like self-sovereign identity. So we're, as lawyers, we're not quite at the bleeding edge of it, but we're trying to support the industry and think through all these things. And, and most um, 
in my experience, and it's probably self-selecting because why would you come to a lawyer if you didn't care about these issues? You'd just get on with it and, and not take legal advice. So I'm I'm aware that there's a sort of um, a bias in um, what I'm describing, but we generally deal with reputable people who are aware of the uh, risks and trade-offs associated in all of these projects, and they do want to work through what the questions are, how risk can be managed, how policy questions can be managed. Also very aware of the fact that regulation can change quickly. So you may be compliant one day and then governments or policymakers decide that this is something where there are potential harms that haven't been identified and the rules change on you quickly. So there, I think there's a lot in the news at the moment about the difficulty of regulation keeping up with technology in lots of areas. And that's a a truism. So regulation always trails technology, but it becomes a harder and harder question for for the people that I work with and doing my job because the technology is accelerating and the regulation still works through the same processes of proposals, consultations, reworking the proposals back to another consultation, going through a legislative process. So these are really hard conceptual questions that I think we're not going to find easy answers to. We're just going to have to um, keep wrestling our way through with uh, support from people joining the community. Yeah, and, and thanks so much for, for sharing that. And, you know, we, we, we could talk for hours on, 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 on that. And I'm, I'm super passionate about the metaverse and been dabbling with Decentraland and Sandbox and various others that are, you know, out there, Megawatt, et cetera. But Charlie, we, we have to, to sort of pause there. So I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And if people want to follow or get in touch about anything we've discussed today, what's the best way for them to contact you? Feel free to shout out out any social media handles or website links and we'll also share them with this episode for you too yeah um i'm a bit slow on social media having said all all of that for the last while um i i am um still very email based although all of the clients talk to me constantly through different channels so i thought i'd mastered all of the teams and whatsapps and signals and telegrams and now they've all gone onto discord so um people can email me uh, I said we'd been merged in, so slightly awkward email address, charles.kerrigan at cms-cmno.com, or I'm on LinkedIn as well, and always happy to talk to people. There's definitely an opportunity here for lawyers, and lots and lots of people have helped me through my career and still do, so I'm happy to help people with questions or advice or something Ah, thank you so much once again, Charlie. I've really enjoyed learning a lot, lot more about undoubtedly what is the now and in the future. So it's been a real pleasure having you on, wishing you lots of continued success for the future. But from all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, over and out. This week's review comes from Connor C. Great for law students. My friend Angie told me about the podcast and since then, I've been hooked. Thank you so much for your lovely, kind words, Connor. We really appreciate you. From all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast team, thanks a million.